Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to a panel composed of Dr. Ed Kovach, Associate Professor of Computer Science at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Mike Cirilla, Associate Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Paul Symington, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and Dr. Dan Keebler, Professor of Biology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, discussing the topic, Are We Machines? Has Modern Science Left Room for Personhood? This panel is part of the Science and Faith series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The moderator of this discussion is Dr. Dan Keebler. The panelists present in this order, Dr. Kovach, Dr. Keebler, Dr. Symington, Dr. Cirilla. Let me introduce the other members of the panel. This is Dr. Ed Kovach, who is a professor in the Computer Science Department. Um, Dr. Paul Symington, who is a professor in the Philosophy Department. And on the far end is Dr. Mike Cirilla, who is a professor in the Theology Department. Uh, what we're going to do is, uh, each uh, one of the panel members is going to give, up and give a, a short five to ten minute uh, talk, just sort of uh, looking at this problem from their discipline. Um, and uh, what's going to happen, Dr. Kovach is going to go first, I'm going to go second, we're going to go Dr. Uh, Simonton will go third, and Dr. Sewell will go last. Uh, just so you realize, uh, before you get uh, shocked by what Dr. Kovach and I say, Dr. Kovach and I are both going to argue today from a materialistic position. So we're going to talk to give you the argument that um, a scientist who is, believes that the mind and brain are the same thing, there's nothing more than just mechanical workings going on, what's the argument that they're going to give? And then uh, Dr. Kovach is going to give an argument based on um, uh, artificial intelligence uh, computer science uh, professor that might think that, hey, there's nothing else going on in the brain other than an um, algorithm that's run. Okay, and then uh, you don't I, know I don't know what they're doing on that. But <laughs> <laughs> who knows what's going to come up? But they, they, and then at, the, at that point, then uh, well, we'll, we'll probably comment a little bit, uh, respond a little bit to each other, and we'll open up for questions that, that you all may have. Okay. So, Dr. we'll go ahead and get us started. Thank you. As you know, computer science is a relatively new field, and uh, particularly within the past 30 years, we've learned a lot interdisciplinary, particularly from <coughs> nature. And one of the things that we've learned is many, many supposedly complex phenomena are really in the result of objects following simple rules, interacting with each other in predictable ways, out of which comes complex behavior. Let me give you an example. I have in my hand a six-sided die. Assuming that the die is you know, a relatively honest die, I can roll it, and I can predict what's going to happen. I'm going to get a number between one and six. And again, assuming that it is an honest die, and if I do it 600 times, I should get approximately 100 ones, 100 twos, 100 threes, etc. Now let's add another die. Okay, here's the second die. Again, six-sided dies, numbers one through six, and I can roll it. And again, we know from the rules that if I roll it 100 times, and if it's a fair die, I should get approximately 100 sixes, or excuse me, if I roll it 600 times, I should get 100 ones, 100 twos, etc. Now, what happens if I put these two die together? I'll get a number between 2 and 12. But there's a little more complexity there because when these two freely or randomly interact and they come up with their different numbers and I add them, I don't get simply, if I did it uh, 1,200 times, I wouldn't, sim or not 1,200 times, if I did it 11 t uh, 1,100 times, I wouldn't get just 11 um, 102s, 103s, etc. I'd have another pattern. Approximately one out of every 36 rolls should be a 2. Approximately one out of every 36 rolls should be a 12. Approximately one out of every 18 rolls should be a 3. Approximately one out of every 18 rolls should be 11. Thus, we have a pattern emerging that's more complicated than the simple patterns of um, divided, you know, the numbers are divided evenly. Now we have this pattern. Again, no divine hand, no immaterial force, it's just simply these simple concrete objects working with, not, uh, working in random with uh, things that are predictable. Now, 
nature has a lot of things like this. For example, biologists studying anthills and termite colonies have found a very elaborate, complex structures, free with air spaces, with uh, tunneling. Now, it turns out that although these are beautifully constructed, they arose randomly. How? Because each of the ants or the termites in a predetermined way acts. And the interaction of these social insights produce these very complex, beautifully architectured dwelling places. Uh, likewise, another creature which is a little more interesting, the cockroach. It has some very complicated behavioral problems that we were trying to figure out and which computer science following this pattern has solved, which I'll bring up in just a little bit. Look also at our brain. Our brain fundamentally has just three basic functions. Our brain can detect contrast, detect patterns, and make association. Everything else that we can do is a result of the interaction of those three basic properties. Now you might say, wait a minute, there needs to be more than this. Well, if you look at mathematics, all of numeric mathematics can be boiled down to just three simple functions. That is successor, that is you have a number and you could calculate its successor. The second one is constant, that given a certain input, you always get the same output. And then a projection, given a set of numbers, you always take the fifth value or the sixth value. Everything mathematically that can be solved can be solved by a formula which can be derived from these three simple rules. Now, when CS first tried to simulate human intelligence, we did get some results, but we kept hitting dead ends. Now, one of the results I'm just mentioning in passing was a program called ELISA. And ELISA was interesting because ELISA simulated a Rogerian counselor, you know, the type of person who'd go, you know, doctor, I'm not feeling well. And the doctor would say, well, tell me how you're not feeling well. Well, I'm angry about my mother. Well, tell me about your mother. Well, this program simply does that using one of the basic properties of the mind of association. People who've looked at ELISA have told that there's been, they've been benefited by talking to this program. Now, whether or not it's self-aware, probably not. But we've moved on from there. We've now come into what's called the emergence algorithms. That is, we're discovering that instead of trying to attack the problem as a whole, we're breaking it down into small, semi-independent units which interact with each other. So, talking about the wonderful cockroach. For years, we've been trying to program little mechanical cockroaches to act like cockroaches. I know, that's just what we need, more cockroaches. But anyway, uh, and we failed miserably. And then someone, they came up with the idea of what we're going to do instead of trying to conquer all of cockroach <coughs> behavior, right, a module that just handles how a cockroach reacts to light. Then another module, how a cockroach reacts to a wall. Another one, how a cockroach acts when it's in an open space. And several other ones. Put these all together, had them interwork with each other, and you know what? We've come up with the simulation of a cockroach behavior. Um, this is probably how we got our minds. Our minds are made up of a number of semi-autonomous areas that are interacting with each other. Through this complex interaction, what arises is what we experience as our consciousness, what we experience as our knowing. In a way, it is probably nothing more than an illusion, just the result of the interaction of these complicated um, systems. Now, there are a number of people in AI who are saying with the emergence of, or with the beginning of the emergence technology and other advances such as Morales Law, probably around 2040, 2050, we'll truly have machines which the consciousness emerges and are self-aware. As you can see, as I'm saying that what we're suggesting, in fact what we believe, is that our consciousness and our free will is more or less an illusion. It's simply a byproduct of the interaction of very complicated, uh, the complicated interaction of some very simple systems that produce this. Although we'd like to believe we're in control of our decisions and they're free, these decisions are really nothing more than the results of 
the random rolling of these die. Now, granted, there's a lot, you know, in it. It's not simply rolling the die. It's our environment, etc. But still, in the very basics, it's nothing more than these simple um, systems forming a complex interaction. Thank you. And I'm going to speak more from the biology uh, perspective than uh, Dr. Kovach spoke from computer science uh, perspective. And I wrote most of this down because I had to make it up, and, and, and so it's not coming. So I'm just going to read most of this uh, because it doesn't flow that naturally uh, from what I normally talk about in class. All right. Uh, so thank you for deciding to come tonight. Of course, you didn't decide to come. Right. Your brain, that three-pound machine honed by millions of years of evolution, is what brought you here. Okay. I know you're probably still operating under the illusion that some immaterial mind or soul animates your brain and this mind is you, or at least is the part of you that makes conscious decisions and free choices such as whether or not to come to events like this on a Thursday night. But the reality is that mind that you so cherish can be lobotomized with a knife, excited by hormones, disrupted by electrical currents, drugged into an altered state, and extinguished with a sharp blow to the skull. Your mind is nothing more than a three-pound lump of neurons packed neatly behind your eyeballs. Your mind is your brain. Although calling it a lump is not a fair assessment, as Dr. Kovach sort of alluded to, it's a unique conglomerate of electrical and chemical signals pulsating through a vastly parallel network of neurons and their connections, which in turn gives rise to behaviors such as your presence here tonight. Some people might call it a computer, but it's actually much more than that. True, they are both <laughs> machines, but the brain has been programmed in a different way. Right? A human programs a computer in a few days, years, hours. Your brain has been programmed to develop an inherently flexible set of algorithms. It's amazingly flexible in the types of problems that it can solve. And the reason is because it's been programmed by about 600 million years of vertebrate evolution to give you the vertebrate brain that you now possess. Right? It's evolved, as Dr. Kovach uh, alluded to, to recognize novel patterns. The brain's very good at that. To identify emotional states in fellow primates. Very good at recognizing fear or anger in other individuals. Uh, it's uh, evolved to hone in on important sensory details and ignore <coughs> things that don't really matter. It's adept at acquiring language abilities. Um, and it solves many, many new problems every day. Right now, for example, you're trying to solve a new problem, a novel problem, the comprehension of what I'm saying, right? which might be difficult, might be easy. But it is a, what I'm saying is a unique string of words that you've probably never heard of before. You may have heard the same argument, but you haven't heard these specific words. But you are able to make sense of it. Well, how does that happen? Well, a sound wave is hitting your ear. And that ear turns it into an electrical signal. And these are signals sent through the brain stem to the primary auditory cortex, where you recognize the pitch and the tone of the sound that I'm making. And then it's sent to Wernicke's area, which is right next door, where you're able to process those tones and pitches into words that you have learned to associate with certain meanings. All right? now, these signals are then sent and processed to other, shared with other modules in the brain that Dr. Kovach was talking about, the little modules that do different things. And as they share this, it works up memories that you have that might be associated with somebody else that made arguments similar to mine, or certain emotions that might then be attached to what I'm saying. All right? For example, if what I say about reducing the mind to the brain conflicts with what you learned in Dr. Symington's wonderful classes, or about the soul in Dr. Cirillo's classes, the information um, uh, might trigger areas in your brain such as the amygdala that generates sensations of confusion or anger or disgust. Right? Uh, this information might be conflicting with your religious feelings, that arbitrary belief in a higher power that has been programmed into your brain via cultural and evolutionary factors in order to bind you more tightly to some social group. Right? Neurons are sending electrical signals and chemicals. They are being released. Different areas of the brain are acting. And that is all there is to this story. Notice there's nothing in how you're comprehending what I'm saying that can't be described without taking into account material forces. There's no immaterial soul or force or mind. It's physical material. It's stick to the wall brain all the way down. Right? There are no gaps left to explain. If we take out Wernicke's area of your brain, you're no longer going to be able to process language. There's nothing else that can do it. A physical area of your brain that has to do that. Right? If you um, inject drugs into the amygdala, right, you're now going to either 
depending on the type of drug, become more angry or become more docile. Right? The amygdala is going to do that. Injecting drugs into other areas of the brain aren't going to do that. There's a specific area that has to do that for you. Stimulate the temporal lobe with these transcranial electrical devices. You put a little device on top of the skull that emits an electrical signal and causes an electrical field in the brain. If you do it over the, the, the temporal lobe, off on the temples, you end up can generate in certain people religious experiences. Right? Uh, so the experiences you have can be reduced down to mental, physical properties of the brain. Now, okay? now I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, what about those fantastical sensory experiences we all have? Surely they're not material. Of course, uh, we need a brain. You know, the argument of the brain is a necessary but not sufficient condition for consciousness. Well. Uh, you know, we need something else. There's some immaterial aspect associated with our conscious experience and free will that we have to have. Uh, to that I'd say, as Laplace would say of God, I have no need for that hypothesis. It buys us nothing. In reality, what we call free will turns out to be an illusion. Right? And neuroscientists have demonstrated this. Right? They've shown that brain activity that is predictive of some action, say just flicking your wrist or pushing a button, right? occurs in your brain before you have a conscious awareness of this is ever going to occur. Right? So there's a, a number of experiments that were done in the 80s and been followed up in the, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and to this day um, that uh, flow from an experiment by uh, a neuroscientist named Labette, um, where what he did is he asked subjects to uh, press a button whenever they felt the urge to do so. Okay? And they, uh, variations of this uh, will have them do a different movement where they flick their wrist or, or do some simple movement whenever you feel the urge to do that. Right? Um, and uh, what they found is that, let me explain how the experiment works. They have the person stare and there's a uh, sort of a clock uh, at the back. There's a little dot going around in a circle. And they're staring at it and there's numbers there. So they could see when they decide to move their finger, they look and they can see on the clock and they can tell uh, where the dot is that's when I decided to move my finger. And then the uh, finger will hit the, hit the button. And all the time they're imaging their brain. Right? And you would think if you have conscious free will that what would happen is you would make your decision, the brain would become, the area that moves your finger that would then become active and then your finger would touch the button. Well it turns out when you do that, what happens in time, the area that moves your finger becomes active first, then you become consciously aware, and then you hit the button. And this um, has been repeated in a variety of different experiments where you're doing simple, simple movements. So in uh, this experiment, the interesting thing is that the subconscious buildup uh, that determines the movement is going to occur, originates before you're actually aware that you're going to make a conscious movement. Right? The fact of the matter is that we have no conscious control over this. This is what's called in neuroscience uh, this, 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 uh, this subconscious buildup. Uh, 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 it gives you an illusory sense of uh, free will right? because the subconscious buildup occurs before you're even aware. There is this zombie in your brain, in a sense, that's doing and making decisions for you, although that's anthropomorphizing what's really just a pro computer program. Right? The physical inputs that enter our brain are processed and eventually well up to form what are called these readiness potentials right? that then trigger the actions that we become consciously aware of only after they have started after they've been set in motion. Now, because each brain is physically different, for example, mine has more neurons than Dr. Symington's, for example, <laughs> these potentials might propagate. That's an ad so hominem. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. These potentials might propagate, recede, and fade out differently. So as a result, two people will respond differently to the same stimulus, and actually the same person might respond differently to the same stimulus on the next day. Right? Because the brain changes, uh, but because uh, not, but 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 people respond differently, not because we're choosing differently, but because the brain and the structure of it has already determined what readiness potential will bubble up to the surface, and then will trigger what you perceive as your conscious decision to move my hand like this. Right? I didn't decide that; I was just bubbling up. I'm not consciously aware that's happening. Now, in fact, if you activate certain regions of the brain during the decision-making process, you ask someone to make a simple decision, and if you influence the brain with that transcranial magnetic stimulation, you then can influence the person's decision. You can cause um, and pre uh, get predictable outputs by activating certain regions of the brain, whether they'll push a button faster or, or slower if you give them the choice, of, or pushing the button on the right or the left. You activate a certain region of the brain, you can 
caused their decision to be that they activate the button on the left. This is not surprising as the stimulation alters the neural activity in the brain, thus changing the subconscious processing of that readiness potential. Now, just like altering the code in a computer program alters the output, altering the activity in the brain, any way you do it, is going to alter the output. You might be thinking still that this still doesn't explain why we have such wondrous sensory experiences, uh, particularly of free will and deliberation. Right? So if I stop right now, I take a breath, and I look to the right and look to the left, and I see you know, all these people out there. I see the smell of the pizza in the back of the room, and you have all this, this very rich sensory experience. You say, well, why is it that neurons firing and processing information like a complex machine would ever generate such rich sensory experience? Right? Why is this? Why do I have conscious sensory experience at all? Right? If I'm just a machine, why do I just operate like a machine without any sensory awareness or conscious awareness of what's going on? I could be talking right now saying the exact same thing, but have no conscious awareness of that. So why? There must be something that this conscious sensory experience is for. Um, if the brain is processing this and supposedly doing all this work to give me a conscious sensory experience, it must be for something. There must be an immaterial mind. Well, not so fast. Okay? Because an immaterial mind has no means by which to affect a physical brain, the machine that actually is determining my behavior. An immaterial substance, something that any self-respecting scientist considers a non sequitur, has no causal connection to behavior. How does something that is immaterial affect the firing of physical neurons that modern science has shown to be essential to directing and predicting behavior? Is some magical Ilan Vital like um, like, uh, like a cat-like burglar, modifying the brain, leaving no footprints of its activity. Give me drugs and chemicals and electropulses and growth factors if you want to talk about modifications of the brain. Give me something I can hang my hat on rather than some, some uh, give me something real that I can hang my brain on. I try to hang a brain on some immaterial concept as the mind, uh, it falls to the floor. Right? If an immaterial mind did exist, it would be an impotent add-on. It'd be less important to the workings of human behavior than a cup holder is to the workings of a car engine. Sure, I might have a robust conscious sensations and illusions of free will. I don't deny that, that, that I have this. I'm not sure about everybody else. But they are merely epiphenomenal side effects, sideshows signifying nothing. Basically, they're emergent exhaust of 10 billion neurons firing away in my brain doing all the hard work. Consciousness, in a sense, is like a drug that nature has given us to keep us feeling happy and self-important. It's a variety of zombie-like things in our brain subconsciously plowed on, as modern science has shown, doing all the heavy lifting and pulling all the strings and deciding all of our decisions. By now you can all uh, understand how we've organized the panel here, right? It's like Plato's allegory of the cave, right? You begin in the realm of shadows and appearances. That's awesome. And you work your way up. You know, the guy who talks about cockroaches at that level. And then you move up to the, right, to the divine science over here. So, uh, what I'm sort of, as, as the intermediary sort of uh, person uh, here, <clears throat> I sort of took it upon myself to, to give us a kind of taxonomy here for uh, broadening our thinking. Uh, so that we can, you know, not be pigeonholed into specific uh, sort of arm-twisting uh, maneuvers by the um, the scientific community. <clears throat> uh, so, where we're going to start here is just to look at uh, first a general understanding of how um, how to conceive of possible ways of conceiving a relationship between science and non-scientific beliefs. So generally understood. So I'm not talking about the <clears throat> relationship between faith and science, uh, faith beliefs and science beliefs, but more broadly, uh, scientific and non-scientific beliefs. And there seems to be three ways that we can understand their relationship. The first is what, I, uh, what we can call, or what I would call, the domination view. <clears throat> this is the view that non-scientific and scientific beliefs are inherently con conflicting with each other in a wholesale way, so that the truth of science means the falsity of non-scientific belief and vice versa. So there's obviously two models here that we can look at. The first would be um, on the side of, of, um, of uh, sort of the non-scientific worldview or beliefs win. This would be scientific anti-realism. This is the view that science is a look at existing th things not as they exist, 
but through a kind of veil or a kind of filter of mathematical quantification. So there's a kind of, of um, derivative status that scientific beliefs have that discount them in relationship to non-scientific beliefs. So this is something like, well, we, we begin you know, our life with non-scientific beliefs, uh, and we give them precedence. And it turns out that because of this conflict, uh, scientific beliefs never actually gain <clears throat> any kind of, um, uh, they, they never actually express any reality about the world. Now, of course, on the other hand of this, we have uh, folks like uh, Dawkins, uh, Quine, Rosenberg, these, these uh, philosophers, biologists, who um, believe also this domination view, but on the other side, the scientific side. So they would say, you know, materialistic reductionism, uh, eliminativism, the only uh, aspect, the only thing that's true is scientific beliefs. <clears throat> now moving on to the second way of understanding the relationship between the beliefs, we can look at the, uh, what I call the independence view. Uh, this is the view that scientific and non-scientific views are independent of each other. So neither realm can constitute a substantive critique of the other. So they're like two ships passing in the night. They do their own thing, and they do it well, but one can't ever impinge upon the other. Now, we can look at two models for this as well. <clears throat> the first is the view that science is objective and impersonal, whereas non-scientific belief is subjective, or perhaps intersubjective and personal. So someone might say, who holds this view, yeah, I don't really care if you know, Dr. Kovach has proven to me that determinism is true, and I have no free will. The most important thing is that I have a feeling of free will. I feel that I'm free. Okay? You can put some uh, thinkers in this category, such as maybe Kierkegaard, on some interpretations of him, um, <clears throat> et cetera. A second model uh, would be something like this. Science has its delineated realm by which it reveals truth about reality. Non-scientific claims fill in our knowledge of reality at the boundaries beyond which science cannot reach. This is the, the view of Stephen Jay Gould, for example. Okay? And these would be something like, well, you know, if you want to talk about how um, you know, biological organisms work, according to the mechanisms, that's fine. That's fine. But science <clears throat> cannot get at truths, for example, things about you know, ideas about fine-tuning of the universe or questions about why is it that no truth contradicts any other truth, these sorts of questions. Science can't, can't touch them, and yet they're important for uh, investigation. The third view is uh, integration view. So this is the idea that although scientific and non-scientific beliefs are methodologically distinct, although perhaps overlapping in some areas, scientific and non-scientific beliefs should be integrated and made compatible through a mutual critique. <clears throat> so I, I see two, two models here as well. One where you give precedence to scientific views. They're the more fundamental, and, but they need to be uh, revised by non-scientific <coughs> views in some way to make room for non-scientific views, to make room for the critiques that, sh that show that science is, uh, itself cannot, perhaps in principle, account for uh, certain phenomenon that, that are experienced. A second model of this view would be um, the idea that non-scientific views are fundamental, and yet science, science comes in and offers a critique, a refining effect upon our, our, our views of the world, and um, so they need to be taken seriously, and our views should be revised. So an example of this would be uh, Something like, um, I guess, uh, sort of neutralizing a little bit what Dr. Keebler is saying, about a view something like, uh, you know, yes, our decisions are impacted by nature nurture uh, situations, uh, neural states, but it doesn't altogether take away our free will. Um, that idea is, uh, is incoherent, something like that. All right, so. The next, the next point I wanted to, to bring up is just to look at 
exactly what does it mean to say that man is a machine? <clears throat> so how would we define this? How would we define the idea that man is a machine? <clears throat> I have two on the handout that I have. I have two actually that I gave. I'll just look at the first one, the metaphysical account. So the idea is that the man, man is a machine if and only if man is an object made up of parts wherein the existence and properties of the human being as a whole are fully caused by its parts and their causal interactions and configurations in virtue of the properties possessed by its parts. This would be a lot like what Drs. Keebler and Kovachar have presented to you tonight. So the question is, what's the problem with, with this definition? So I, let me just say, I, I've given this the strongest possible formulation, right, for the sake of argument. Right? This, is, this is what sort of the new atheists uh, will push, uh, naturalists uh, will push. <clears throat> so what's the problem with, with defining man that way? Well, it seems like there's two problems. The first is that there is no possibility for what, what we call top-down causal action or mentally caused action, okay? Things like rational behavior, things like um, you know, free choice, autonomous behavior, that, that has its seat in the human being as a whole, right, gets neutralized. This is because of things like the law of conservation of energy and the causal closure principle under the physical, right? It's a closed system here. There's no room for anything outside of the system to, to intervene and to affect the results. So that's our first problem. The second problem is human beings could have come into existence on this model merely through chance interactions of elemental bodies. <clears throat> now, of course, my, my you know, hair was curling when these guys were talking. I had these arguments. You know, that, uh, we'll save those for the q and I'll skip over that section. Um, but I just want to point out that uh, it, it's, it's, this is sort of an argument from authority sort of thing, but um, it's interesting to point out that there are some significant trends in contemporary naturalist philosophy. Um, Thomas Nagel, David Chalmers, um, uh, there's a, um, another guy, a little, a little earlier generation, Norman Malcolm, <clears throat> who have um, really realized that uh, naturalism, in fact, isn't sufficient for accounting for the whole shooting match, as it were, um, and that, in fact, it needs to be broadened or reconceived in some way. All right, so let's, let's look a little bit at what I could see as three options. This is what I call options for squeezing a soul theory into the mix. Okay, so, uh, okay, the first view would, would come from the, the, the domination view. And this is just, would be the idea that, hey, you know, these large objects like human beings are, uh, are primary. And the way the parts through which they're analyzed are derivative, right? They come through the, uh, uh, the quantification of nature, okay? Which, as I said, has a filtering effect, okay? And although it, it you know, it, it, it helps us to uh, do things like predicting behavior and these sorts of things, it lacks, it's, it's an error to treat these elementary particles as if they were substances in the full sense of the term. Right? And what I mean by substance is things like dogs and cats and trees and other human beings. Okay? That's our primary model for understanding many things, including causal interaction. Okay? So it seems to me that on this view, what someone could say is, is that you know, it's very interesting to, to break things, to quantify things with respect to its ability to predict behavior, mimic behavior, et cetera. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, is these entities that you've discovered just don't have the causal powers that you're giving to them, right? When we think of these, 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 uh, these little bits that the physicist identifies, it's very easy to, to envision them as identical to these macro-sized objects, like little hard balls that bounce off each other, right, and these sorts of things. But that um, doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that they're very different, and they behave very differently in that way. And a domination view person could say, it's because, in a certain sense, we've manipulated our target here through the quantification process. 
Of course, this view has a problem. This view uh, is problematic because it seems to lack what I call a conservative principle, right? And this is the, the idea that, look, we need something that retains um, a, a relation of conservation between the interaction of these, these big bodies, right? These big bodies lose parts, and they affect other things in other ways. We need something to account for this, this conservation principle. So it seems that there's got to be something out there right, that answers to these things. All right, the second possible option here, this is sort of the weirdest one. Um, this would come from the independence view people. And this is the idea that the soul is not an efficient cause of the parts that compose a human being, but rather the soul is only the formal cause of the parts by which these things are given all their properties. <clears throat> so generally understood, this would be a uh, uh, sort of an occasionalist or a um, compatibilist view. Okay? So you say, yeah, fine, you have these particles. They're, they're doing their thing out there at this level. Okay? But at, that's at the efficient cause level. They're sort of, you know. And then sometimes they get together in certain ways. And a soul joins the party. Okay? And the soul doesn't actually have any efficient effect on the movement of these parts. Okay? It's um, joined to it, and it, in fact, gives those parts properties it didn't used to have, but it's not physical properties that it gives. Okay? So it, it, for example, gives a bunch of atoms, a bunch of molecules, the property of being a human hand, right? able to do various things. Okay? But the analysis of the movement of those things will be compatible with a perfectly closed uh, physical system. Okay? Now you might say, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. I'm throwing that one in there, this was Leibniz. Leibniz had a view similar to this. He was sort of working through the modern world, the, the Enlightenment world, and the scholastic uh, period. So I thought I'd throw that one out there as a representative of the independence view, right? the two independent spheres. Of course, a problem with this view is that it seems to take away any kind of free will, right? or it makes free will really harder to understand. Leibniz's view is that God sort of pre-programmed the movement of these parts to correspond to what's going on in the mind and the wills of the mind, et cetera. Um, and that, that seems a little to strain plausibility. All right, the last view, uh, which I'll briefly mention, is just um, this view that there are elemental parts, and they are, in a sense, have a certain amount of priority to the things that they compose, insofar as they each have their own set of physical properties. But these elements in themselves do not actually possess the full range of properties that they have when they compose a human being. And that actually includes physical properties. Okay? So like the, the independence view, the um, hand, right, the soul gives to this bunch of molecules the property of being a human hand or being able, a foot, to kick a soccer ball. Okay? But there's also physical properties that are changed when it's appropriated into the human body. Specifically, um, the, the, the alteration of those parts to respond to, okay, um, to, 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 you might say, to respond in a way that's not fully closed, physically closed under the system. For an ability to interact with the soul at some level, maybe we, we put that at the quantum level, right, where you have some probabilities there. Okay, where the soul actually is able to exert um, some, some changes. Right? So just for example, if I freely choose to do x versus y, I'm going to have different neurons firing because of that choice as the initiator of that choice. Right? So it, it's, it, it breaks open this causal uh, closure enough to squeeze a, a soul in. There's a lot to handle uh, tonight. This is a very dense issue. Um, I'm going to give a targeted response, uh, none of which provide, none of the elements of my response provides a thoroughgoing refutation of positions with which I disagree, nor establishing with demonstrative certitude the positions uh, that I hold, but they, the remarks tend to point in that direction, and so I have three basic points to make. First, I want to identify some logical inconsistencies in the positions uh, uh, by thinkers represented 
by Drs. Kovach and Keebler. Some logical inconsistencies and other problems. Secondly, notice I say the positions of people represented by them. Okay? So you know, what's, you know what's going on. All right. Uh, it's, a, it's a dialectical setup. Uh, it's a good, good exercise, very important mental exercise. Secondly, I want to raise and address with some precision uh, two, two, what I see to be the two principal philosophical issues at stake here. Uh, there are others that are ancillary ones, but these are the two, two principal ones. And then finally, I want to make some, a, a closing theological point. That's what I'm here for anyway, right? All right, so here, <laughs> here are some inconsistencies or other problems uh, in the position, uh, especially as articulated by Dr. Keebler, okay? Uh, first of all, um, the intent of the remarks composed and delivered by Dr. Keebler, I think the same can be held for those of Dr. Uh, Kovac, were intended to <coughs> persuade the hearers. But if there's no uh, freedom and there's no mind, then there really is no possibility of considering different claims. There's no choice in the matter. And more than that, in the mind, there's no wherewithal to determine if any of the claims are in fact true. That's an inconsistency. That's a performative inconsistency. If the intention in delivering the remarks is to persuade, and the remarks say persuasion or imply persuasion is not possible, then it's, it's self-inconsistent, performatively is how we say it. Secondly, perhaps more intensely or problematically, uh, the remarks themselves are remarkably self-inconsistent since <clears throat> Dr. Keebler, for example, pretending he held the, the things he said, Dr. Ke Keebler, for himself to be consistent, he must not be free to hold or speak anything other than what he did say. In other words, he couldn't have been saying what he did because he understands it to be true, but rather because he couldn't have done otherwise. Something to think about. It's also a performative self-inconsistency, okay? Because the implication at least, and I don't think it's reading in too much to say this, that at least the implication or perhaps presupposition of the speaker of those remarks is that I can see this is true. I'm not programmed to see that it's true. <laughs> there is a difference. Okay. Th uh, third uh, logical issue or inconsistency or problem is this. <clears throat> and it's an important distinction that hasn't yet been raised. And it's cr critical if this problem is going to be resolved responsibly, academically, and even interdisciplinarily. This distinction is fundamental and, and critical. The question of whether humans have rational, non-material souls with a mind for understanding universal truth and a rational appetite or will for freely choosing or loving is decidedly distinct from the question of whether humans are machines. Those are two distinct questions and they've been presented without the distinction drawn. No one's denied the distinction, but I'd like to, to, to highlight it, all right? In other words, the question do humans have non-material rational souls is a very different, though related, question from the other question, namely, are humans machines or robots? Robots. <laughs> I had to get that in there. I like, I like that, robot. All right. And finally, in terms of the logical issues or some inconsistencies or problems, um, aside from Dr. Symington, who's Description is, is interesting, and we can engage in the Q&A. No one really described with great precision precisely what a machine is. So that's critical to determine what that is in order to find out if we're one of them. Okay. Two principal philosophical issues. Are humans machines? <clears throat> okay. And secondly, do humans have rational souls? And they're related. If you didn't know, if you didn't have a stake in the, if you didn't have a stake in the game, or a hat in the ring, or whatever, you, you might be able to say initially, well, maybe humans could be machines who have souls. 
Is that possible? Maybe not, but at least just because a human's a machine wouldn't necessarily tell you whether it has a soul or not. I, and for the record, I don't think humans are machines. I think we're like machines. I think machines are like us, other animals or, or other living things, um, and that we do have souls. But in any event, here, here are the two philosophical issues, and here are some brief forays in the direction of resolving them. It's not a resolution, okay, but here are some, some issues. Uh, it seems to me, and this is debatable, and it needs to be debated and critically evaluated, that machines are works of human art, it seems. That's not an uncommon position to hold, that humans are machine, uh, that, excuse me, machines are works of human art. They have parts, just like humans have parts, and uh, other animals and plants and other things have parts, but their parts are united uh, fundamentally by an extrinsic source. Think of a clock or another machine, the thing we obviously call a machine. If it's a spring-loaded clock, you have spring and other you know, hands that don't naturally come together, but, they're, but the fact that they are united and come together has to be brought about by a source extrinsic to the clock, pushing those things together, somehow joining or uniting those parts. Second, third, a machine. So a machine's work of human art, its parts are extrinsically united. Uh, third, the actions of a machine are fundamentally determined, and that doesn't mean in every instance, but fundamentally determined uh, by an extrinsic source, not by an intrinsic source. And I say the machine's parts are determined, uh, their, their actions are determined by an extrinsic source. The parts themselves have perhaps arguably intrinsic uh, activities, but the way they're working together in this conglomeration, this clock, like a spring in this clock, the, the action of the spring in this clock is determined by an extrinsic source, usually the human who, who produced the artifact, the machine. And four, machines, uh, to really be a machine, the parts have to be working together towards some intelligible goal, some meaningful goal. Now I think, and all that's debatable, I'm not establishing it, just baldly asserting it, throwing it out on the table. Humans, I think, are like machines, but humans are not machines, or rather, machines are like humans, and like other animals, and like other living beings, even plants. How, how are we like machines? Well, we also, and other animals and plants, have parts that work together for an intelligible goal, no doubt. But here are some critical differences. There are other similarities, but here are some critical differences to consider, just to throw them out. First of all, humans are not exactly works of human art or artifice the way that uh, non-living non machines are. Humans are involved in producing other humans, uh, but not really works of art. Present my children as, look at my work of art. <laughs> look at what I, look at what I, I put together. <laughs> I, I was involved in doing it, but it's not exactly a work of art. Uh, it's a work of nature. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, the, uh, the parts in humans are not fundamentally united by an extrinsic source, though extrinsic sources are absolutely necessary for the parts to be there and, in, and to continue to function. But they're not fundamentally brought together by an extrinsic source. This can happen, transplantation, no doubt. You can transplant bodily parts into other bodies, all right? But that's not the norm. That's predicated on there being a body there in the first place that's not a transplant in order for transplants to take place. Transplantation is a dependent uh, uh, phenomenon. And finally, while some human actions are determined by extrinsic sources, absolutely, no doubt, okay? In fact, some very basic natural sources like light, water, air, and reaction to sens sensory experiences and other physical phenomena acting upon uh, a human. Uh, not all, not all human actions are determined by extrinsic sources and not fundamentally so. That's very abstract. Perhaps less abstract way to say it is that we move ourselves and aren't programmed to do so. It's bald, bald assertion, not demonstrating it. All right. But these are ways to put, these are important issues, claims to be torn into and, and ripped into in order to engage the question whether we're machines. What is a machine? Are we machines? Are we like machines? How are we unlike machines? All right? Secondly, uh, well, let me give you an, a little example here. 
Um, I think it's significant. A spring in a, in, a, in a clock with a spring can be removed from a clock and placed in a machine of a different kind altogether uh, with completely different purposes and, uh, and be the same spring. Okay? You could take a spring out of a clock, let's say arguably, and put it in a spring-loaded pen or if it's a big clock, spring-loaded gun or something like that. Okay? And it's still a spring acting the same way in, in either context. Uh, however, uh, with, with human parts, and by parts I don't mean on the quantum level, Paul, uh, Dr. Simonton raised that issue, and there's atomic issues too, but I mean kind of more basic, identifiably human parts. Quantum parts and atomic parts are not unique to humans. They're found in, in other non-human things. But distinctively human parts, like a human hand, okay, a human head, a human brain, a human heart, etc. Uh, are not the kinds of things that you take out and put in a note completely different kind of being. See, this, the idea with the spring was out of a clock and into a non-clock. You take human parts out and put them in a non-human, so this excludes transplantation. You put the parts of a human in a non-human, you don't really say, let's say it was, it's always going to be something gross, right? So it's like a head or a hand that's not part of a human anymore, okay? And then you can say, right, that's a human hand, but let's say you're using it in a conglomeration for a different function that's kind of morbid or something. Um, when there's a human hand in a, in a functioning in a different non-human fashion, it's gross. I don't know how else to talk about it. Uh, I've spent a whole semester you, doing that. Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Head transplant, brain transplantation. Could you imagine keep yes, his yes. brain in that body? But that's <laughs> brain. But let, but see, that's different because that's that's human to human. I'm talking about human to non-human use of formerly human parts. It doesn't act the same way like a spring acts the same way in the clock and in the pen and in the gun. If it was the same, if you could do that, okay, it acts differently. And usually we say that's we can say that's a human hand over there. But we react differently when we say, that's a human hand over here. That's a human hand. That's a human hand. <laughs> What's the difference? Well, the difference is, is one is part of a corpse. It's acting in a fundamentally different fashion. Whether you can revive it or not, it's acting in a different fashion. That's, a, an, a, I think, a helpful, gross example to consider here, OK? <laughs> Secondly, second philosophical issue on the table here is, do humans actually have rational souls? No time for proofs. Just some basic, in fact, just maybe one basic point of entry reflection. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, line of thinking that Aristotle gives in De Anima um, on the soul for establishing the existence of a non-rational soul. Humans seem to be performing kind, certain kinds of activities that do not seem able to be performed by bodily material organs. If, if it's true, it's all these ifs, right? Because you have to establish this, and we don't have time. But these are good things to bring up. If it's true that, uh, <clears throat> that a bodily organ or a bodily power of, let's say, knowing, like the five senses, the five material senses, are, because they are material, proportioned only to receive information of other material things. Okay, that's, that's a big issue there. If they're material, it seems, and Aristotle, I think, demonstrates that their, their power is proportioned to knowledge of other particular material things, yes? And yet, and yet, we seem to be, on a regular basis, for quite some time now, ruminating about universal things rather than just merely particular things, such as universal laws of mathematics. Even given the 20th century insights into the different mathematical matrices, Godel shows that you have to have at least three universal commonly accepted print, uh, uh, fundamental principles to generate any kind of mathematical system. And those will be universal in the application of that system. If you, if, given that system, they're universal. How in the world are we dealing with this? Well, Hume has an interesting way of dealing with it. It's habit. It's a habit. But others think that what we're doing is we're having an insight that is not available to a mere bodily organ of knowledge. A material particular bodily organ of knowledge is proportioned to the knowledge of material particulars. Here we're having knowledge of universals and so and that are non-material. So doesn't it seem like there might have to be a non-material power that's proportioned to receive knowledge of non-material universal truths? It's not a proof, but that's just a taste of how one way to go about 
demonstrating the existence of a soul. All right, that's how Aristotle does it. There are other ways. Here's the theological issue. You've got to be careful here. Uh, theological issues do shed light on issues in the natural sciences and in natural reasoning and philosophy. They, do, they can shed light, or at least perhaps, you could say, uh, establish parameters. What theological insights do not do is prove scientifically in terms of the natural sciences or prove philosophically in terms of philosophy uh, that such and such is the case. They don't, they don't count as philosophical or scientific in terms of the natural sciences proofs on that ground. So here are some, let's see, I've got four very quick and simple uh, elements of church doctrine to consider. Okay? Uh, first of all, the church is consistently taught <coughs> John Paul II, Fides et Ratio, Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, Vatican I, 1860s, Dei Filius, that faith and reason what we can know by revelation and what we can know by natural powers cannot truly contradict when it's true knowledge. Why? Well, different explanations as to why. Uh, Aquinas' explanation is God is the source of all truth, revealed truth and natural truth. You're not, in other words, going to have something that you know for sure through faith that will be refuted or contradicted by sound and good reasoning on the level of natural science or philosophy or history, okay? They won't contradict. That just because you know something by faith doesn't prove <coughs> that it's true philosophically. That's received by revelation. So we're talking about different spheres of knowledge, different modes of knowledge. We're here talking about a supernatural mode of knowledge that's compatible with natural modes. So you won't find a contradiction. That's church teaching. Faith, in other words, Definitive church teaching are things that Catholics, teachings are things that Catholics owe assent. We owe assent to them, okay, to put it maybe in deontological terms, but they liberate us, right? It's true, to put it in more personal terms. Now, secondly, the church teaches and has taught consistently that human beings have bodies and non-material rational souls. Most recently, Gaudium et Spes, Article 14, man made of body and soul is a unity. So the church asserts humans have souls and does so definitively. Does that prove that we have souls philosophically? No. Does it prove scientifically that in terms of natural science we have souls? No, it doesn't. But it's something we have to hold by faith and that faith is not going to contradict reason and vice versa. These are the significant things to think about. Uh, third, the Council of Vienne which is an ecumenical council of the church, one of the 21st, 21 general universal ecumenical councils of the church. This is, this is the bomb, yeah, this is, this is the nuclear option. You don't, you don't use this, <laughs> you don't option. use it to demonstrate, but it is a parameter that we need to respect as Catholics. Uh, the Council of Vienne in 1311, 1312, okay, um, dogmatically defines that not only do we have souls, rational, immaterial souls, and physical bodies, but also dogmatically defines that our human souls are, just like Christ's human soul, the single, solitary, substantial form of our bodies. Here's the quote. It's a little, heavy, it's a little heavy duty, right? It's going to feel nuclear. Quote, moreover, with the approval of the said council, we reject as erroneous and contrary to the truth of the Catholic faith Every doctrine or proposition rashly asserting that the substance of the rational or intellectual soul is not of itself and essentially the form of the human body, or casting doubt on this matter, in order that all may know the truth of the faith in its purity and all error may be excluded, we define, see that in a church document, it's defining, okay, it's a big deal, we define uh, that anyone who presumes henceforth to assert, defend, or hold stubbornly that the rational or intellectual soul is not stubbornly is not the form of the human body of itself and essentially is to be considered a heretic. <laughs> I play the heretic card, <laughs> but I have to. I'm a robot. <laughs> I don't have a choice. Well, anyway, so look, the, the theological considerations don't preempt reason. They don't substitute for reason either. Okay. They're, they're in, in these claims about the human soul function as necessary parameters for the understanding, really, of the mystery of the human person, 
in its revealed fashion, mystery, revealed mystery of the human person, especially the revealed mystery of Christ, who's a divine person with a real human nature. Uh, so that's important. They don't substitute for philosophical reasoning or natural science reasoning. I can't help but just say one last thing. We didn't define science either. And in some accounts, science can be used more broadly to, to point out any kind of knowledge in any sphere that provides some degree of certitude, meaning I know that it's this way and that it can't be other than it is. That's kind of certitude. You could have that, in that broader sense of science, even theology could count as a science and so could philosophy. But Paul, uh, Dr. Symington and others were using science legitimately with a narrower scope, I think usually to mean empirically verifiable knowledge. Is that correct? Especially through the means of hypothesis testing and uh, a math quantitative formulation. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.